History lecture number 86. Um, so we led up to uh, talk about all the uh, precursors to the expulsion. Today we'll talk about the expulsion and the immense aftermath. Um, I mean, I guess I'm biased. I feel this way about much of what we do in history. But it, it, as, we've, as you fasten your seatbelts, this next, um, the upcoming events and discussion is really important in understanding the unfolding uh, world of the Renaissance and Enlightenment and everything to follow. So uh, good you're all here and hopefully our other colleagues will, will, will join us too. In January of 1492, a term that I've been referring to is the Alhambra Decree is issued to actualize on the promise made 101 years prior, November 1391, the king resolved to convert um, exile or kill all the Jews, uh, the, the latter option for those who refused the first two, and uh, he's, going to, he's going to do this to the Jews, and they bribed him to put it off 100 years, and true to their word, 100 years passes, and the Alhambra decree goes into effect, uh, expulsion for all Jews of Spain. Now that's been a reality, certainly in other parts of the world, many parts of the world where Jews were uh, congregated in England, in France, in uh, Germany, in Austria, but it's new for Spain, and it, it was um, utterly shocking, and in Spain at least, un unprecedented that the most established Jewish community outside of Eretz Israel, outside of Bavel, ever would face total expulsion. And it is, we're, we're leading up to one of the uh, lasting traumas of Klal Yisrael. Um, the excuse written in the Alhambra decree, why kick out all the Jews? They had to come up with something, right? So they, they say it, they, blames them, they blame them for the ongoing problem of the, those conversos who keep relapsing. It's an easy finger to point, an easy, uh, easy piece of blame to assign that, uh, that because those Jews, whether they're really relapsing or not, but the conversos, you remember the whole story yesterday where they were accused, whether it was true or not, of, of secretly harboring Jewish beliefs and Jewish practices. Um, that was the fault of Klal Yisrael in whole. And um, listen, if that's my fault, I'll take that one. You know, if I'm, if I'm guilty of causing other Jews to love Hashem and keep Torah, uh, yeah, I, that, you know, that'd be great. Was it a crime or a vote? I didn't hear. Was it? Was it ever revoked? Revoked. Yeah. One second. Yeah. The Alhambra decree is, is, is issued. Um, the total number of Jews who were expelled is unknown. There are a wide, uh, a, a, a wide range of estimates, as little as 40,000 up to 800,000 based on all kinds of figures, but this is still a phase in history where they did not keep statistics as orderly as, uh, as they would certainly much later. Um, you know, really in the Shoah, even till today, um, the estimates, the six million is, is not accurate. Today, the present, the present scholarship indicates that something around 5.8 million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, not really six. And you want to say that's quibbling, what's, it's one, what's, what's a couple decimal points? Well, actually, when you're talking about millions of people, it's quite a lot. If people also say seven million, that's not accurate. That's not accurate, no. Like, people say that we no, it's probably overstated when you say six million. Again, but these are estimates, and even in the place where they obsess over the Holocaust details, like Yad Vashem, they only have a little over half of the actual names of the victims. The rest of the they can surmise, but a lot of the data, even in the even in the um, 
the, the methodical German machine didn't quite have uh, all the records. I mean, they, they, they murdered these people, so they didn't really care about their names and their personalities. Then again, there's, there's so many victims that weren't even accounted for and weren't even counted. So how do you think today's estimation would be an understatement? Maybe. Maybe so. Okay. Uh, the Jews are forbidden to bring silver, gold, jewelry. They're given between, uh, up until July 31st, uh, July 31st, in other words, halfway into the year, to sell all of their worldly possessions. As we said yesterday, the Spanish take advantage of their desperation. They <laughs> offer them almost nothing. Uh, and what, what are your, what are your, what are your um, alternatives? As we said, many will abandon their belongings. Somewhere around the number of 100,000 Jews go next door to po Portugal, which invites them. Usually, among other things, Jews are good for the economy. They bolster the economy. We saw that in the example of, uh, of, of Daniel Tzaka Barbanel. They certainly, the Jews, think about this, they are so skilled and so integral to Spain's culture and their economy that the Jews, the best option it seems open to them seems to go to Portugal. After all, it's right next door. It's only a matter of time, goes the thinking, that uh, Spain realizes what a calamitous mistake they've made and they're going to invite us back and usher us in with open arms. And so we'll just ride out the storm next door. In 1496, I'm jumping a little bit, I'm going to go back, but I just want to follow this thread of history through. It, in Portugal, in 1496, the king of Portugal marries the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. And within a year, he has begun a campaign against the Jews that includes a large, full-scale uh, kidnapping of Jewish children. Um, there's a particular notorious uh, episode where they round up um, hundreds, if not thousands, of children on the first night of Pesach and force their baptism. We'll hear about one such, uh, one such instance in the, uh, one of the Gedolim. Uh, was, was, among, was among these. Um, Jews then are converted en masse or in 1497 expelled from Portugal. Now, hold on, just, just take this in for just a moment before you rest with the question, but just consider this. You, you were riding out the storm in Portugal and the storm came to you. There's no place that Jewish people can be. Uh, it, it, is, it is a national trauma and it traumatizes, obviously, the Spanish Jewish community, but it traumatizes Jews around the world who have this notion that as miserable as we are up in Germany or out in uh, Persia or anywhere in the four corners of the world, there was always the notion that there was a place of stability that welcomed the Jews, that would be Spain, and now the rug is literally pulled out from underneath them. There's no place for Klal Yisrael. It doesn't end there. It's Portugal in um, 1506. The Dominicans commit what they call the Easter Massacre in Lisbon, the capital. Um, and it's against, now there are no official Jews left, but they, uh, they, they wipe out conversos. That they accuse, of course, the, again, the, the, the accusation that the, uh, the conversos had relapsed, so let's go kill them. Daniel? Yeah, Child, he was given a choice to convert or die. 
and out of fear, he decided to convert. And right before he converted, he realized that he gave in to fear of converting instead of siding with Hashem. So he walked over to a, uh, you know, a standing suit of armor <coughs> or something like that, lined up, standing up on the wall. And he punched him with his right hand, and he basically lost three of his fingers in the process. And they asked him why he did that, and he told him the reason. And because of that, he was like, he was allowed to stay Jewish. I don't know the story. I am not surprised. It either is apocryphal or real. It certainly could be. And it could be almost, it could be any number of times in history. This was our fate. We are, our generation is so removed from this reality. Baruch Hashem, most of us are spoiled rotten by being born where we, and, and living where, we, where we've lived in our lives, of relative liberty, relative freedoms. Um, we haven't really known this persecution, but this is the ongoing story of all of our ancestors. For the last couple thousand years, Elon. Uh, what do you know? What's your opinion on the <coughs> idea that Christopher Columbus? We mentioned this yesterday. Uh, we also mentioned that most of the figures in our story, Isabella, Ferdinand, uh, and 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 uh, Thomas de Torquemada, probably all had Jewish ancestry. Not completely. Um, these are all theories in scholarship and acad- in the world of academia. They spend a lot of time working on this one. I think it's a theory that can never be proven one way or the other. So all we can say is it's compelling and reasonable. But and and ultimately without an octamina. But Columbus was assumed to be Jewish, so he was locked up anyway. That's simply a theory. No proof no, on such a theory, thing. Right. People talk about those kinds of things because they make for popular, uh, popular reading, and that you could maybe get tenure if you write that your PhD dissertation on the subject. Uh, there's no way of of, of knowing for sure. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll. The Jews are kicked out of Spain. Wait, so name the Jews are kicked out of Spain, and effectively the decree remains true, with some exceptions. Some sneak back somehow. You know, they they, they live they live a double identity. There were certainly many conversos. I'm about, I'm about to talk about the term Verano that comes into use at this point in history. Um, but effectively, the Jews are not welcome in Spain. And just this last year, we heard a formal change of Spanish policy that welcomes back Jews of, of, of Spanish origin. Uh, a little too little, a little too late, but that, that was just revoked now. But Spain is not officially a Jewish place. Wait, now, last year was them giving Spanish citizenship to any Jews that want to. Right. So what about them revoking the Alhambra? Uh, that's a good question. I'm sure there's a technical answer to it. I, I'm unaware. Uh, we said we said that the Spanish Inquisition lasted all the way until late 1834. Uh, so I'm unaware of any of any um, major turnaround. When you say that it ended in 1834, like in 1833, they would still be. Uh, it had waned. I said it was also in great decline, but there were instances of the auto de fe. Right. Uh, that was part of the auto de fe, but also just for the Inquisition itself. There was an inquisition. Yeah, it existed. In, it, again, it, it was small, but it was a threat. Now, the term Murano means filthy swine. It comes into use around this point in 1492. Obviously refers to crypto, the crypto-Jews. Crypto-Jews meaning cryptically Jewish. Conversos who secretly practices Jews, whether they did or they didn't. These were accusations that were impossible to prove one way or the other, but the Jews could never defend themselves either. The... Uh, it was a dehumanizing tactic, something that we're going to become familiar with when we study the Shoah. They referred to us as cockroaches need, in need of extermination. And these, using these terms made it much more palatable and easy for the common person to participate because after all, they were working for the betterment. It was a moral 
aim to, of course you want to exterminate vermin you want to exterminate rodents and that's all Jews were so by using the term Murano you're you're effectively uh, you know making it much easier for the population to swallow this bitter pill I looked it up it says in 1960 okay oh that would make sense Vatican II we will spend some time discussing the uh, question is, it ha did it have any practical function in there? Maybe that's why it's not that familiar. Yeah. And was, that was just a technical kind of thing. But 68, that's, that's still a long, time. A long yeah. time. Yeah, that is a good detail to include in, my, in, in, our, in our discussion. Thanks for the, thanks for the uh, insight. The, um, in Halacha, Jews like this, the conversos, the so-called Moranos, are called anusim, which is a term that now in the second parak of, of uh, Makos we're, we're familiar with which means it's not their fault. A lot of them were forcibly converted. Uh, their sins, therefore, of a different stature altogether. They're tinok shenishba, which means they're captive babes. They don't even know that they're Jewish. They certainly don't know that they're doing sins. Um, yeah? But still, halachically, they're not allowed to convert, even with the threat of death. Oh, that's true, if they even know that. But you're talking about several generations removed. They have right. no idea of any of, these, any of these ramifications. There's some famous... Uh, people with Murano ancestry. Some of the names in history, if these, if these are familiar to you, there's a uh, very famous leading statesman in the 19th century Britain named Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, he, was, he had Murano ancestors. Generalissimo Francisco Franco, uh, Fidel Castro, um, and uh, not surprisingly, um, Rita Moreno has Murano ancestry. Uh, I don't know if that's connected to the name. It seems it seems compelling to say that. Um, I'm sorry. You're all you're all looking blank faced. I'm talking about 1962 Best Supporting Actress West Side Story. I know. I know. I know she did that. But I know she did. I like to be an American. <coughs> the um, no no Rita Moreno. No, no, no. no Castro didn't sing in West Side Story. The um, the anybody familiar? Anybody know anybody with the last name Sephardi Jews? The last name Sutton. Pretty common last name Sutton or Seton or variations therein. It became an increasingly communer, common, popular, common name. It Sutton has abbreviations of of um, Sin Tet, which means Svardi Tahor, pure Svardi. It was a badge of pride that many Svardi who held out, who resisted conversion through tremendous. Uh, hardship and uh, and mysterious nefesh, uh, they they uh, didn't succumb, and it's one way to distinguish themselves. They're not Ashkenazim. Uh, they they uh, they held out. Sutton or, or, or uh, sometimes you see, even see the name spelled with an abbreviation with a two, with a two mark abbreviation in Hebrew. The um, today there is a small movement made up of people descending from these crypto-Jews, from these conversos, who are, uh, who are actually returning to, to Torah. And there is a Baal movement among them, which uh, certainly seems to have uh, the smell of ingathering of exiles of Kibbutz Galios and uh, the, the end of days, that, that they'd be coming back to the, to the, to the fold. Yeah. You say something? Um, something else starts emerging at this time in history. There been, there's a little bit of... Uh, there's a little indication that they, this might have pre predated the Spanish expulsion, but now with the Spanish Jews um, formally exiled and adrift and refugees in the world, 
a language emerges around this period that starts becoming widespread. That's, of course, Ladino. Ladino combines Old Spanish with Hebrew. Uh, and then, depending on where you're living, you can have an influx. Ooh, it feels like a class reunion of sorts. Um, the, uh, it, <coughs> it could, you, you could have a heavy dose of Aramaic, Turkish, Arabic, Greek. Uh, it would be spoken by Jews far and wide in the Balkans, in Turkey, in the Middle East, in North Africa. It's, people compare it to Yiddish. Certainly, it has that unifying quality, although, although the different dialects of Ladino sometimes made these Jews not understand those Jews, both speaking Ladino, but such different dialects that they were really unintelligible one to the other. But um, it does have this, and, and, and also, you know, it does have this quality of being influenced by the local host country. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it's another phenomenon that exists, and many Jews would speak Ladino. Uh, we'll, we'll, it'll, we'll, 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 we'll be encountering it now. Wait, what are the origins of like, those languages, like Spanish, Arabic, or, or Spanish, versus like at the very beginning of our class in history, we made the assertion that a very reasonable case could be made that you know Lashon Hakodesh is the original language; they all come from from Lashon Hakodesh. There, I don't know if you're asking about the general families of languages. Oh, yeah. They're the Latin languages yeah, yeah. that are very distinct from the Slavic languages that are very dis distinct from the Semitic languages. So I'm saying, is Spanish more... Spanish is together, is a Latin language. It's not at all related to Arabic. Spanish is together with French, romantic. English, romantic, Latin language, romantic language. Uh, Portuguese is in that same family. Slavic is not at all. Germanic languages is another category, unrelated. And Yiddish... Yiddish, came from Yiddish comes from High German okay. and Hebrew, and so, and, and so there would be no no other than the Hebrew admixture. There wouldn't be an inherent, you know, link between okay. Ladino and Yiddish. Okay. Linguistics, Langu linguistics, very interesting study for sure. Um, after they were exiled from Portugal, where are you going to go? You're a Spanish refugee. They settle far and wide. They go up to one of the popular destinations is the Netherlands. The Netherlands, Holland, will become a major Sephardi community. Uh, we associate it as being as being Ashkenazi, but that's just in location, in terms, in, in point of fact. It was it was a heavily, it was a major. It was one of the reasons is that Netherlands was a Spanish colony. So there's a natu natural link between the two countries, and we'll hear about the Spanish community. Uh, in, in, in the Netherlands. Turkey would be a major destination. Uh, we'll learn about the Mizrahi who lived in Turkey, who was a, a Spanish refugee. Um, Italy will be another one. Italy, of course, will, ho will host the uh, Barbanel family. Egypt, Poland, uh, they go far and wide. Um, there is a logical destination. If you're a refugee in the world, homeless Jew, where are you going to go? Eretz Yisrael. And indeed, many set their sights on Eretz Yisrael. But in the immediate aftermath, map, who's, who's now in power in Eretz Yisrael? The, the Mamluks. The Mamluks have no interest in Jews coming, certainly not in any great number, um, in the immediate aftermath, and we're going to see that's going to change. And it's going to change because the Mamluks' time is, um, is, is waning. It's, it's a, just a couple decades away before the Mamluks lose their holding in Palestine, and, and, and Palestine is taken over by... The Turks, the Ottomans. So that's going to change a lot. And we're going to see, a, after the Ottomans go, come to power, a huge influx of, well, not a huge, no, I should no, exaggerate, a um, small but significant influx of Sephardi Jew, Jewish refugees, significant because many of them are Gedolim.
because to come to Palestine in those years was so difficult. There was very little hope of a parnasa. There was a probability of oppression. But if you've got your head screwed on properly and you have your hashkafas clear and you know that Akash Baruch created the universe and you have Torah in your kishkas, so where are you going to go if not Eretz Kodesh? And if you're a gunnel in Tyra, that's where your that's where your heart and mind is set. So you're you're going to go there. And we'll tell that story. When Columbus sets sail that summer, in same summer of, of 1492, and it's the decree goes into effect in August, around the time the the, the harbor is full on Tisha B'Av, of Jewish refugee boats setting sail someplace else, any place else, just get rid of them. And when Columbus sets sail, the exact same story, the exact same summer, he writes that he has to wait in the harbor because there was a traffic jam. There were too many ships filled with Jews. And if we, as we, as we uh, conclude the discussion on the expulsion, um, if we contrast these two events, the Jews tragically leaving Spain, forcibly leaving Spain, with Columbus setting sail to, as it were, discover the New World. And notice how racist and Eurocentric such a concept is, right? Columbus discovering the New World, and it was long discovered beforehand by other people. But, um, but he, when he sets sail, he represents the beginning of Europe, Europe's opportunism in the Americas, uh, opening up a whole new chapter in history and one way of looking at it is the exact same year that Hashem closed one door, He opened up another. And the so-called discovery of the Americas would represent a new opportunity for Klal Yisrael that's going to change history, uh, and one that's going to be a mixed bracha. Bracha for sure in some, on some level, and, um, and, and, and a klal on another. Yeah, not, 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 not uniformly positive. I'm going to round out the period of the Rishonim by talking about another period who's alive during this entire debacle. He lives in, he comes from a, um, a city in northern Italy of Bertinoro. Actually, the city's called Bertinoro, but we often change the pronunciation of cities that have their association with idolatry. So we, he, he, we, we go from Bertinoro to Bartinura. And Ravavadimi Bartinura, who's often called the Rav, writes the authoritative Perush on Mishnah and lives through all of these all of this period in history. Uh, he's not Spanish per se. I mean he's not he's not from uh, Spain. He doesn't 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 personally endure this hardship, but everybody alive in this time it's as if it happened to them. Um, his Perush, hopefully you've all learned it, uh, figures prominently, it's right there on the daf. It incorporates Rashi Rabbi Shimshon Mishans, remember the one of the Balitosvos, the Ramban, the Rosh. He also, his Rashi on the Gemara, but he also has a lot of Rashi on Chumash in his comments, in his comments. and um, he lives most of his life in Italy, and in 1486, that really is a class reunion. 14, okay, great, welcome. Uh, 1486, uh, Ravavadia, you've, you've heard the name Ravavadia Bartolomeo? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Oh, <laughs> anybody want to see a picture? We've got, we've got show and tell today. Look, right in the back. Here. In the back, indeed. Oh, I see. Here we go. Here's what he looks like. This is his profile. Okay. So uh, he set sail from Italy in 1486 for Eretz Israel. 
Because that's what you do if you're Jewish and you love the Jews and you love Hashem and you love Eretz Israel. You want to live in Eretz Israel. And he comes and what he finds is a desolate Jerusalem. It's desolate physically. It's desolate spiritually. The Jews, there were Jews in a small community. Um, not, not a large number of Talmud Chachamim relative to what one would expect in Ira Kodesh. Uh, and he reaches there two years after he set sail in 1488. That's how long it took once upon a time from Italy to Israel. Um, he keeps a diary of his travels. We have it. There are all kinds of terrific descriptions of Mars Machpela. I, I often uh, mention them and, and, and really all over Eretz Yisrael, the Kibre Tzedikim. He, his, he is this glowing figure of bonami, of goodwill and good cheer everywhere he goes. And he's just a blast of Kedusha, literally a, a whole injection of Kedusha in this sad, impoverished land. He, his, his arrival, you can't underestimate this, boosts the morale of Yerushalayim's families. There's 70 families. And it's, it, it's really considered a new Baal Tshuva movement. It's a revival of Torah. He teaches, he, he, he checks the mikveh, he makes sure the kashus is okay. He then goes abroad and raises money for the bedraggled Jews. Uh, to support them. There's a terrible decree. The local Mamluk authorities have an exorbitant tax and Rabavaji is such a charming personality that he's able to come close to the authorities and he abolishes it. He arranges with them to, to have them abolish this terrible tax that's crippling. Um, Spanish exiles, a few of them at least, do get through in the early 1490s and he opens the first significant yeshiva in Yerushalayim in centuries. Since, we mentioned this a few centuries ago, the yeshiva's Gaon Yaakov was forced into Golis in 1127 um, and then later on dispersed. This is the first real yeshiva under Avadia. Uh, we know what, what happened to the old yeshivas of the old world, Surah and Pumbedisa. When we, when we now find at the end of the 1400s, we find, we find Ravavadia in, in Jerusalem, Surah and Pumbedisa are gone. Long, long since dispersed by the Mongols from the 13th century, 200 years earlier. Uh, you remember up in Akko was the, the base Midrash de Paris, Ravini Achiel, the Ramban. So um, they were, that at this point was tiny and almost insignificant. So now you have a big, big yeshiva back in Yerushalayim. Uh, not only does he serve as Rosh Hashiva, but he's the Dayan, he's the official, the head of the base team, and the Jews go to him, and so do the local Muslims. <coughs> you remember this, uh, this dynamic in the period of the Gaonim, that even the, even the non-Jews realized the inherent justice and fairness of the Jewish system. They said, Rabbi can you do our case too? And he did. That's what I think in the dictionary under the term Kiddush Hashem, I think you're Rabbi Vadyu Bibartanura's picture. Uh, he had one particular, he didn't like certain things that he was aware of going out in the world. Um, from the days of the Orzerua, there was a practice in Austria and Germany. Um, German rabbis made money for being rabbis, and he writes against the practice. He said, this is a mitzvah, and one doesn't make money for mitzvahs. And indeed, he would work all of those years without any remuneration, no money. He, he had his own, or he made, he made do, he had a very simple life. And um, he's actually buried um, right beneath, who, who's, been, you, who's been to his kever? He is buried right at, who, who's been, have you been to Ir, what they call Ir David, the city of David, which is really the original city of Yerushalayim? So picture standing in Area G, looking out in that famous 
the place, the place where they feel like you can see the burnt, charred remnants of the destruction of the first temple, where they have the the, lav- the, the, the lavatory and the the, the, four, the four-chambered house and all the rest. So then turn around and look down the valley, the Emek Yehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley, and then down to Silwan. And right down beneath Area G, there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of rows with olive trees. And one of those rows is the Kever of Ravavadia. Sadly today, because Silwan is one of the places that's hostile to Jews, it's a little bit dangerous. Maybe if you bring your own Malava um, Neshek, your own, your own uh, gunman with you uh, to protect you, but it's not a place that's often... Uh, people visit, but he's right there. Won't go there though. They should go there. Ravavadi, I'm saying not not as frequently as they you should. Go down there, but you can see it. I know, but there's something that going to the Kever itself, putting a stone like the like oh, the Jewish yeah, Menhag. Right, right as much they do. I know people who do go down, but not nearly as much. People stand from the top. It's like right, it's not. Unsafe. I mean, can you picture the Kever? Yeah, You've seen it. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, like the, we're we're starting now the period that we call the Achronim which is actually where we find ourselves in the present tense. So we've turned, we've turned a page in the book of history, and um, you think, oh, wow, we're making great time in history, but I commented the other day that I'm about to slow down because it gets really interesting from this point, and since one of our objectives is trying to figure out how did we get here, and why does Klal Yisrael look like Klal Yisrael as we do today? So confusing. Um, I want to try to pick up a lot of these strands and, and try to understand every one of these aspects. Um, as, as, with, as with everything else, since I have you all here, I can't encourage you enough to be here and be part of this and to relive this vicariously. There's something about going through the total experience that's incredibly powerful that I identify with, and because you know I'm passionate about it, I want to share that, share that with you. So insofar as you can get here, I encourage you to do that. We said before that when we make these transitions between the different eras from the Tanaim to the Amorim and then into the Sabarim and the Gon and the Rishonim, it wasn't like suddenly we woke up one day and say, okay, we're the last ones, we're the Achronim. Uh, it, was, it, was, there was not, it was not a clear beginning and an end. There was certainly overlap. Generally speaking, the Beit Yosef of Maran, Habet Yosef of Yosef Karo, is considered the la- is a work of a Rishon. It's often related to as a work of a Rishon, whereas the Shulchan Aruch, which is just written a little bit a short time later, is already considered the work of an Acharon. So he himself, in his personality and his, his scholarship, <coughs> represents that transition. As we move as we move into a whole new era, we'll describe what's significant about that era. Shortly, I'm going to get to that. Um, most, therefore, most of the 16th century Gedolim, and it's it's a century of immense names. Uh, that we're, we're going to meet some of, some of the great lights of history. Um, most of them, therefore, are considered achronim. The nafkamina is generally, the big nafkamina, we've said this before, is that later authorities usually can't argue with earlier authorities. There are exceptions, and, the, and, the, and there are always exceptions whenever you have a rule like that. In the case of achronim, who's the most uh, famous exception that, that, that has the status that can take on a rishon? The Vilna Gaon. Really? Yeah. Why? Because if you were the Vilna Gaon, you could too. And you'll hear, but be here for the day we do the Evil Lagoon. You could be the Villagon, You can? Any one of us. You betcha. I, I believe that true. I absolutely, that's absolutely true. This is a pretty important time in the world in general. It's a time of transition on all kinds of levels. And I'm going to take a moment to consider what's going on in the world at large because every one of these elements have direct impact on Klal Yisrael. Um, this is the time in world history that's referred to, especially in Europe, as the Renaissance, the rebirth. And indeed, those of us who relived the Black Death in the 1300s, the decimation of much of the world's population, 
um, to mysterious plagues, bubonic plague we know in hindsight. Um, now the world is waking up and the, we said the Black Plague, the Black Death is not entirely behind them, but they're starting to overcome. As they rebirth in, in, in a distinctly Christian style, it's a time that's known for decadence and materialism. People are, you know, it's I guess after a funeral, people want a good party. So that's kind of the spirit of the times. And um, it's kind of like, picture, this is the way I picture it, it's like the Yetzer, the Yetzer has been, been lying low for all that period of the dark Middle Ages, Dante's Inferno and the medieval uh, dungeons, and now after laying low for all this time, now the Yetzer's finally coming out of his hiding place and having a good old time. It, back in, the, in Dante's Inferno, there wasn't much hope in this world. You weren't going to get out of this world in any happy way. Your best bet, this is one of the reasons the church was at its uh, peak, at its height of power in the Dafka in the times of the Rishonim, because, you know, they had it. They said, yeah, this world's terrible, and nobody, nobody, can, nobody can hope for much in this world. Your only hope is if you get salvation in the world to come, and that's how most of humanity saw things. Um, suddenly now, as we turn the corner, and this is beginning to be true in the 16th century, but it's... Every bit is true today, if you think about the Western secular world that most of us are part of, um, suddenly Olam Hazet starts to look not so bad after all, as it turns out, and uh, maybe we could make quite a nice life out of it. Um, this is still a couple centuries before the Enlightenment, and especially the revolution of secular humanism. We're going to meet Baruch Spinoza, we're going to meet some of the... Secular humanism, meaning, in other words, um, inc but we're going to start seeing early signs, meaning the world is still generally monotheistic, at least the, the Christian, Muslim, Jewish world is still mainly monotheistic. Um, they still see Kaddish Baruch, they understand there's going to be a, a world to come. There's a simple, newer understanding that this world didn't have to be all uh, doom, doomsday. There could be fun in this world. You could have an enjoyment in this world. And gradually, we're going to see how that gives way to pushing off the world to come to the point where uh, Hashem himself is written out of, the, out of the narrative. And you can see all of this if you try to look in broad strokes in the big picture um, how, how all these things become not just events that take place overnight, but gradual processes that change people. Say it again. I don't know. I, I, I don't know all of Hashem's ways. Well, it does fit. Yeah, and we can go back to the Gemara and talk about Chavli Mashiach, birth pangs of the Messianic era, where things have a way of going, of getting very bad before they get good again. And on that level, it does seem to conform to a pattern. It permits us to make tshuva gemura when we, if our tshuva is in uh, the middle of utter darkness and desperation, our tshuva, our tshuva counts for more. Kind of like a proverbial chushan, where we have, where we have, uh, where we have that you know dark experience of revelation, kiblu v'kimlu, and come back to Kaddish Baruch in the best possible way. So I, I, that's how I think. That's that's I think a fairly standard way of understanding it. Western life now becomes. Um, caught up with human progress. We can actually make something of this world. And that's expressed and manifested in very earthy physical terms in the arts that are going to emerge. Music and art and theater and all kinds of progressive culture that's going to come out in technology that's going to increase exponentially as the centuries pass. 
we can actually make a great life of it here, Aaron. Yes, it's like we're going back to the Greeks. It really is, but now Greece, it is. It's uh, the world kind of working in cycles, but not entirely. This one is very much born of a, there's, there's like a new sped up progress that is almost like Aesop, more than Greece, I see Aesop's hand at bay, where he, where he you know, at, at, at large here, where he's coming in and celebrating this world in a way, in a certain level, in an unprecedented way, of, you know, it's all about the here and now, is what, is, what, is what we find increasingly. Now, the Jewish reaction to most of this, most of the Renaissance, is initially to resist, to see it as it is, as Trafe, as Ace, as the realm of Aesop, something that we're not involved with. But there's an immense allure. It's incredibly seductive, and we're going to see the Jews are going to also <coughs> be tempted, and not all of them are going to be uh, be able to hold up to it. We also find, and this is another pattern we've been tracing the in the in the last thousand years in the struggle of Aesop versus Ishmael. Uh, where Ishmael now has been very much on top through most of the early, early to mid dark ages through the Middle Ages. Um, now we're going to see unmistakably the ascendancy of the Christian world rising up like a lion after all those years of hibernation over the uh, Muslim world. It, the Christian world also goes through some trans transition. This is very interesting. The church, the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, goes through immense decline. The opulence of the church. Has, are you familiar with this? Has anybody studied what goes on in the church in the Renaissance period? Do you know? Do you know? You're not supposed to go into such things. It's a question whether you can even see the pictures. But the Basilica, St. Peter's Basilica, is the largest and most lavish church ever built. It was begun in 1506, exactly at this time, and it would take 150 years to complete. And they didn't, they didn't skimp on any expenses. It becomes so lavish that it's difficult. They have a hard time supporting it. You know, it's just upkeep of the place is such a it costs such a fortune. So the church becomes a major industry itself. And how are you going to make a living? How are you going to support such a church? They take this former institution and now make it. They, they, it makes it goes viral. The institution, of course, indulgences. Let's take a moment and consider what are indulgences. Again, but let me, I'm going to elaborate a little bit something we've not said in the past. You can buy your way to Olam Haba, into the world to come. These now become essential for the church's survival. Can't, they can't pay for that Michelangelo up there if they, uh, if, they, if they don't sell enough indulgences. Let me just, let me just get this idea across. across the, the concept of indulgence works like this. This is the way they put it over to their own constituents. Saints in the church have all the merits. You common people don't have any merits. It's all the saints. The thing is, the saints don't need their merits when they enter heaven because they're great on their own terms. So what they do is they bequeath... Don't talk about logic when you're talking about the church. So they bequeath their merits to the church. And so the church is holding on to all this valuable spiritual property. In the form of indulge, in the form of these merits, these indulgences that the saints left them, and you, common person, your claim to Olam Haba could be if you buy them. We talked about with the Crusaders, the people could buy it with money, and that's certainly uh, that's certainly the favorable way. Uh, with the, one of the one of the arguments that Peter the Hermit used to attract followers is you could also buy it by murdering a Jew, by converting a Jew. These are a lot of different ways of of, of getting your uh, your merits. 
Um, now, you get so much money changing hands, it leads to two major <laughs> ramifications that everybody's watching, by the way. The corruption of the church, among, among other things, go, does not go unnoticed by the Christians themselves, many of whom are appalled because of the rank hypocrisy in the whole proceedings. You had, this, you had the Pope who was, who was utterly corrupt a lot of the time, as we're about to see. I'm, I'm going to use an example of it, of, of such an individual. But there are many Popes that were corrupt. What you find then is the massive influx of money causes this immense corruption within the church, and it leads to an increased immorality outside the church. Because now, and this becomes increasingly institutionalized in life, now you have criminals, mafia gangsters, who for the money that they make in their life of crime, they buy their rights to the world to come and then continue their life of crime because it works well in both places. This way you could have opulence in this world and opulence in the next world. And nobody's there to fault you with it. That's the state of affairs as we find them at the beginning of the Renaissance in the church. Yeah. Do Christians still have this? And much less. Especially now, well, I'm going to get, obviously, what's, what's the next step that I'm going to talk about? What do you expect in the next, is the next thing that's going to come out? Anybody knows a little bit about history? Reformation. Thank you, the Reformation. The Pope Alexander? Uh, I'm going to get, well, I'm going to just mention him. Yeah, I'm going to mention Pope Alexander just now. Um, right, the Pope Alexander VI, actually, he's not even embarrassed. He openly acknowledges that he is illegitimate. You know, the chaste, the chaste celibate Pope openly acknowledged his illegitimate children, included a couple including a couple of very celebrated figures, Cesare and Lucretia Borg Borgia. Oh yeah, Borgia was the yeah, yeah. Yes. Right. And the whole thing just reeks of hypocrisy and and, and, and shock and scandal and but that was just the reality of life. Now the church is as we've as we've encountered it already, this comes in no surprise, they suppress their opponents ruthlessly. Um, even from within, in, in 1632, the church sentences Galileo to life imprisonment. I'm skipping around a little bit just to paint the picture, but Galileo, Galileo gets a life sentence. You know why? Because he challenged the church. He challenged the church by claiming that. He really upheld the previous view, Copernicus's view, that the world was not flat as the church doctrine taught, but in fact revolved around the sun. And that was, that was, that was, uh, you know, that was a crime. That's the Pope. Right, and if the Pope said that... The, I mean, the Pope could easily died. change if he wanted. That's true, but he didn't. No, but now they're saying that the world is brown. That's fine. It's a different Pope, so... That's okay, and they're both right. They're both and if you don't understand how they're both equally right, then that's your problem, are you? I'm sorry. <laughs> um... <laughs> Okay, so the church is a bulldozer. It's a machine that you don't, you don't, uh, you don't fight. But um, Martin Luther was a force of life that wouldn't be stopped. Uh, Martin Luther forced him to become a monk. His, his parents forced him to become a monk. A monk. Uh, but the guy is too restless and smart for his own good. And he can't, you know, a life of monasticism is not for him. And he abhors the corruption that surrounds him in every facet of church life. At the age of 34, his most famous act was to post the th what's called the 95 Theses in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, 
It takes place on October 31st, 1517. And um, he sets off what's called, you call it the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, uh, which is an explosion. Um, now the church, there's a lot to this and I'm summarizing. So whatever I'm doing, I'm admitting it's, not, it's, it, it's inadequate, but it'll serve our purposes just to get this as background. Um, the masses were illiterate. And at least in Latin, and all the liturgy and all the scripture was in Latin. The, uh, and so what that meant was up until this point, everybody was totally dependent on clergymen for religiosity because they were your interpreters of religious life. You couldn't argue with them, whatever they said, and you couldn't say, well, it says here. You didn't know what it said there. So one of the radical acts of Martin Luther was to translate the Bible. Right? The, the clergy used to say things like, we read the Bible so you don't have to, but that meant that they had all the power. And now Luther puts the power in the hands of the people, and he brings religions to the masses in a new way and ultimately undermines church power. Um, you've heard of Bible thumpers? They're Protestants. I mean, variations of Protestants. Evangelicals, high church, low church, uh, Anglican church, what? The Lutherans, the Lutherans all, all related. Well, that, this was part of the revolution. We no longer subscribe to the church authority, thank you very much. We're going to give the people the power. Um, you have to draw lines between these um, trends in history and see the assurgence of democracy in the Western world as the next logical step. If you put religion now in the hands of the masses, it's only a matter of time until you put actual political power into the hands of the masses too. Now the church puts him into their equivalent of a cherem. They excommunicate Martin Luther, one of their, um, one of their most regretted moves. Because um, what one finds in the case of the church, and the Jews would make this mistake too, um, what, what happens in these days where the church's popularity is waning is they put Martin Luther in, 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 uh, in ex they, they excommunicate him, and that serves to only increase his notoriety and popularity. And everybody, everybody hears about the book that they're not allowed to read, and they go out and they buy, they buy, they, they buy 10 copies for their, uh, for their, for their great aunt's uh, birthday. Right, right, right. Celebr as far as celebrities concerned, there's no such thing as bad publicity. I, that's a modern phenomenon. That's not really true in the ancient world. Bad publicity usually meant death by the auto de fe. But, but in, in, in these times, in the Renaissance, as it's emerging, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a blessing for Martin Luther. Um, we find in, in uh, the period of the Achronim among the, among the rabbis, they, start, they stopped issuing cherems, knowing that it, it has an inverse, unintended effect. Now, the Reformation is going to spark religious wars across Europe. How, how many of you studied this period in history? It's a pretty significant period. It, it ravages Europe. I mean, whole populations, uh, you know, Catholics against, uh, against Protestants, from the day, starting in 1524 and, and, and going all the way into the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. Uh, it's a long stretch of time and terrible bloodshed. The, uh, it's going to have a direct influence on the development within Kuala Yisrael 200 years in the future, of course. Our own Refor reformation in the form of the reform movement and the, and, and the secular enlightenment, the Haskalah. The earlier... Now, what, what are the parallels between these? Not coincidentally, both movements begin in Germany. 
We'll talk a lot about Germany in the, in, the, in the modern period because there's something unique about Germany, some would say it's connection to Amalek, that foments this kind of revolutionary behavior. We know that both Protestants and the Reform Movement would reject the established religion and the way of doing things. And we know that the success of Protestantism will, will give special extra confidence to the later movement's own, uh, own development. As insofar as Martin Luther is concerned, initially Martin Luther makes overtures to the Jews, and there's a, an initial hope that maybe he might be the exception to the rule in our history against the against the uh, Christians. Maybe he'd be the nice guy, and uh, that would be a hope that would be dashed soon enough. The Jews don't embrace him, and he comes to loathe the Jewish people and becomes one of the iconic anti-Semites of all of history, uh, even outdoing the Roman Catholics, if that's conceivable. Um, his writings against the Jews actually would crop up 400 years later and be used by, as, by the Nazi propaganda uh, machine. So no, Martin Luther was no friend. <laughs> there is another dynamic in this period that is all important, and Ilan, you asked before, what is the Kaddish Baruch during this period? This is a time of Hester Punning where he hides his face, and he's all around, like in Purim, but he's, he's, he's everywhere, everywhere to be noticed, but nowhere to be seen. So I want to claim the following major development in world history uh, is, is, to me, a pretty clear sign of Ashkoch Pratis. You know what I'm talking about? The, probably the most significant invention of the last uh, millennium? Printing press. Printing press. Now, for the... For, okay, it can be argued, but let me, let me make the case, yeah. and you'll, you'll debate me. And it doesn't matter anyway. I love, the, I love superlatives. You know, Elon, what you, why you, you, one uses superlatives in order to get people's attention. If they're wrong, that's fine. At least you made your argument. The printing press actually was not invented by Johannes Gutenberg. Contrary to popular myth, it was, it was actually invented by the Chinese and the Koreans during the 11th century, for the record. And they had earlier, earlier versions. But what did Gutenberg do? Gutenberg developed several innovations that now makes, and this is something the Koreans and the Chinese did not do, he makes mass printing possible starting at about 1436. And if you try to understand how do all these things, seemingly undisconnected elements, how do they all spin together to form modernity, it would seem to me you, you don't have to look further than Yad Hashem. Shem is gently guiding all forces in history, uh, as, as, as we see. Now, um, there's a theory that Gutenberg may have been Jewish. We don't know that one either. Um, but the first works are Christian. I was actually in a lecture of a pretty important uh, Torah personality who said the first books were Jewish. And I uh, did as much research as I possibly could, and I think he's wrong. That's an easy mistake to, to make, and I guess Jews reading history are often Jew-centric. Uh, we often think that Jews, Jews did everything, because often we did, but in this case he was wrong, I think. It doesn't matter so much, but the Christians are the first, the Christian books are the first ones printed. Um, the first Guten, what's called the so-called Gutenberg Bible, was a Christian Bible. It may not have been Gutenberg's himself, comes out in 1455. Um, as far as we're concerned, our interest, the first Mesechta, let me know which one it was. Do you realize what a boon the printing press was for Klal Yisrael? Yeah. Think about the ramifications. The first Mesechta was Brachos. It's printed by Sansino Publishers. Sansino Publishers in 1483, so it took a, about a half a century. Um, and then it'll be followed by over a dozen other different Mesechtas by the end of the 15th century. 
Um, the Sancinos are the first Jewish publishers. Um, after the Sancinos, the next major publisher of, of Hebrew books is actually a non-Jewish printing press. Bomberg is the name. It's based in Venice. Um, there are going to be other Jewish publishers that emerge in the, in the 1500s. Think about this. The printing press spreads throughout Western Europe to the point that by 1500, not even a century after its, uh, its founding in Europe, 20 million volumes are printed. That's a massive revolution. It changes all of history. Among other ramifications, a previously illiterate proletariat, working class, suddenly becomes <laughs> literate almost overnight, because there's reason to be. Because now you have freshly printed books that could change your life. <clears throat> suddenly, a new issue that has never cropped up in halachic literature before becomes an issue, uh, copyright. Because who indeed owns rights to abstract information? Theft in halacha is defined as stealing something tangible from somebody else's domain. But if I have an idea, or for that matter, if I write a book, what about that is mine? Hold off on that thought. I have a great story to tell, a very significant story to tell from this period uh, in, in one of the famous shubas of the Ramah, of Moshe Ishalis. But the issues suddenly become, suddenly become live wire. Uh, all of this, as I'm arguing, is part of Ashkocha Pratis, part of Hashem's providence. It seemed to be invented just at a time when the book burnings were, were, uh, were, were, were threatening to rise up and destroy all of our books. And now we have a response. You can burn our books. We'll just print a few thousand extra copies. Um, it's providential, just as the period of the Rishonim seems to be winding down. The Rishonim are considered the last doros with a tradition for interpreting text. And when that now, that valve is shut off, just like prophecy was shut off, and I talked about Zachariah trying to get as much Nebu as possible before the valve was, the tap was dry. So, so too, just as the tap runs dry from Shonim and their, their Ruach HaKodesh, their, 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 uh, their, their gift for interpretation is no longer evident, now the new change, the Masorah, will become based on printed manuscripts. We become a book-based people more than ever before. It's our Svarim that are the bearers of our tradition just at the time that Kaddish Baruch makes the printing press available and emerge and dominant in the world. Saying it wasn't positive? What do you mean? That it wasn't that the people became like that because of that. Not at the same time. It's entirely possible. But notice, I, I, I don't know if you, you haven't been here for the last consistent amount of classes, but what's really striking about the period of the Rishonim is some of the great names peaked early. In the later period of the Rishonim, there are some great names, but they're not quite of the same prominence and stature. And, and there's a feeling that also that whole phase in history is wound down. And, 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 and the whole mode of scholarship now, as we're about to see, is radically altering. We're now reverting to a whole new phase of new halachic codes. Of course, the ultimate halachic, halachic code. A new stage of parshanut, a new stage of trying to understand. But it's, it's text-based. It's not, it's not based on a messiah for interpreting text. 
Rishonim interpret the Gemara for us. Rishonim interpret the Chumash for us. Have innovations. We spend a lot of time in Lamdis trying to understand what does the Rashi say, what is the Ramban, what is the what is the Rambam holding. Um, Achronim are our focus of the Achronim is to, is to put their words together and make sense of them and translate them into <coughs> practical meaning. That's something that we need a, pr- a printing press to facilitate. And just when we need them, all these precious farm become ubiquitous. They're all over the place. In times of immense spiritual desolation, and I really don't think I've exaggerated to describe what the Spanish Inquisition and, and expulsion, what their impact is on Klal Yisrael, it is immense, terribly dispiriting, and now they suddenly have access in a new way to classics everywhere to, to, to boost their morale. They have sudden access to practical halacha when they've forgotten how to be Jewish. Now they can take out a Shulchan Aruch. They have access now, and notice this in the coming days, to mysticism that they've never learned about before. Kabbalah will explode in the coming century. And the fact that now there's a printing press to, to disseminate the teachings of Kabbalah is also part of the, part of the picture here as, a, as, a, as it were, Kaddish Baruch Hu's gift to the desolate Jewish people just at the time in history when we needed it most. With the new literacy in the Jewish world and the, and, and the general world out there, you have the resulting, uh, um, you have the power now going into the hands of the people. And one of the, one of the results is a newfound liberalism that takes over the world. Never existed before. People were, were immensely conservative and tyrants could, could uh, and, and, and demagogues could, could, could hold forth, could reign in those periods. But now you have a new liberalism, a new, a new sense of human progress, um, it continues today because no longer can people be demagogic in the way they teach things, you know, in, 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 in universities. A, a lecture can a certain idea, and it takes two seconds for, uh, for a student to Google reference him and to find that all of his information is wrong. It's, 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 a, new, it's a new world, a much more demogra- de- democratic world. No authority increasingly is trusted at face value in such a world, and all of that we're going to see as the new, new overthrows of religious life as we formerly knew it uh, take place, we see, we see that everything, uh, everything is going to start to change, and the whole revolutionary spirit of the last 500 years starts, starts to make a new kind of uh, sense. You know, a tyrant prefers a docile, uninformed proletariat, and that's just not what you have now. Um, Italy becomes the capital of Jewish printing topography for centuries. As we said, it's the first site of a printed Talmud, but we also have our first Mikros Gedolos, which is a collection of commentaries on Bible. The Shulchan Aruch comes out of Italy and many other classic books. It's a flourishing center because this is where you get your hot off the press, printing, freshly printed books, hold the thought. Um, it's also now becomes a center of learning. We haven't heard of Italy so much, and uh, tomorrow I'm gonna get to some of the great figures that emerge in Italy at this time. Um, it's, uh, even though we're going to also see some terrible decrees against the Jews issued in 16th century Italy, um, there is a nusach. Anybody know this? Anybody been to an Italian shul? They have a special distinct minhag. They have one down on, on um, Hillel Street. Hillel Street, parallel to Ben Yehuda. They, they dive in what's called minhag b'nei Roma. Indeed, the Roman, the Jews from Rome uh, pray this minhag. It's distinct. Um, even though we would say, let's say, it's more, they have more <coughs> in common with, uh, it's debatable what they have more in common with. It's, that's what some claim, I think that's debatable. In any case, in any case, I'll leave that for the scholars. 
Um, certainly, it emerges with the first printed Sidur, the Sansino Sidur, that comes out in 1486 with the Minhag Bnei Roma Nusach. Um, today, you can hear the same Nusach in places like Rome, Milan, and Jerusalem, Jerusalem we just mentioned. Um, it's not the only Italian Nusach. In communities like, um, in other communities, Venice, um, uh, Venice, Florence, and others, they'll use either Sephardi or Ashkenazi Nusach. Yeah. When does uh, Rashi Shrift come out? Like the Hamish? Because that was in the, one of the first printed Hamish. Right, right. Rashi Script had existed before the printing press. It, it was just Sephardic cursing. But yeah, are, yeah. But I mean, when did Rashi? Early on, on. Early on, because it was a great new well, typeset, a new font like to distinguish. Yes. Uh, the last thing I'm going to talk about today is. Uh, really makes sense, is the next logical step. If you think about all of these revolutionary developments, then you, know, you picture the 15th, 16th centuries, 1400s, 1500s, it's a time of exploration, discovery, new horizons, geographically and intellectually. All of this is conducive to a certain spirit of messianism. In the world at large, the Christian world is beside itself with the, with the expectation that Yashka's coming back, second coming. But the Jewish world has a new messianic spirit, and it's not always healthy. A part of it is fed by the Jewish disasters when we experience profound collective national mourning like the Spanish expulsion really brings us. So we look for some sign of, is this really Chavli Mashiach? Is it Kaddish Baruch around the corner waiting to redeem us and save us? We need, an, we need a Yeshua, we need a Geula right now. <coughs> um, I'm gonna mention three figures briefly that are very colorful figures that emerge in this time and not coincidentally. Um, the first is named David Ruveni, familiar? Okay, uh, we don't really know where he comes from, he's a mystery. He lived, maybe he was born around 1490. Uh, he's, his death date is not so clear as you're about to hear. He was a uh, dwarf, but uh, very conspicuous, like this tall? very short person who wore uh, elaborate oriental costumes, and one day he seems to have suddenly appeared with a flag depicting Dudaim. Dudaim, of course, from the, from what was, who gave Dudaim to his, Ruven presents Dudaim to his mother, to Lot Leah, who trades them for, trades them to, to, to uh, with Rachel, and uh, so of course, David Ruveni claims to come from the lost tribe of Ruven. And he offers the flag as proof. Well, sure, well, then I believe you. Um, he claims that he's sent by his brother, King Yosef, who rules, get this, with 70 elders near the Sambachion River in Central Arabia. And who can refute him? And who wants to refute him since people are, are literally plotting to believe his story? They're hungry for Mashiach. And anybody who, who speaks half logically, they're willing to believe. His goal, he says, I want an alliance with the Turks. I'm here. He actually never claims to be Mashiach. He says, I'm a harbinger. I'm, 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 I'm coming as a, you know, as, as a forecoming, a foreboding of Mashiach. He travels widely. His story varies in different places, depends on, what, depends on how he's inspired and what his audience <laughs> wants to believe. He actually, we know that he met with Pope Clement. He also got, in, he got an audience with various kings. He's able to raise vast sums, but he's also a really annoying figure. And eventually, um, the, they arrest him. The Inquisition gets a hold of him. 
and they arrest him and the next the, 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 the other figure I'm about to talk about Rosh Shlomo Mocho uh, and probably either in 1535 or as late as 1541 the Inquisition kills them too if he doesn't they don't kill him they put him down in a deep dungeon somewhere where he becomes obsolete and no longer a nuisance <coughs> so that's David Ruveni stirring up our messianic uh, longing Rav Shlomo Moncho is actually, um, I, this one I have to kind of change my tone. He's definitely a much more, we take him much more seriously. He's got, among others, he's got the Haskama, um, the opprobrium of, 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 Rav Shlomo, of Rav Yosef Karo himself. So he, even though he was clearly, um, he was associated with David Ruveni, he's a serious personality. He was born in 1500 and died in 1532. He actually was a converso. Uh, but he became a Balshuva. He was born in Portugal. He had himself, got, got himself a brismila, moved to Turkey, and in Turkey he connects with Jewish communities and uh, clearly a talented individual. He becomes a Talmud Chacham very rapidly. He was a master of all, all areas of Torah to the point that he attracts a large following. And he goes down to Eretz Yisrael. And in Eretz Yisrael he gets a Chavrusa. Oh, no, 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 excuse me. Yeah, no, he goes down to Eretz Yisrael. He learns Kabbalah. Give me a second. Does he go to Eretz Yisrael? I'm curious now. Maybe this detail is off. Yeah, it's off. It can't be. It's not in Eretz Yisrael. It was when the Mechaber was still in Turkey. Mechaber was also in Turkey. He never went to Eretz Yisrael. So that's a, that's a mistake of my source. In any case, it was, yeah, he learned with Yerbeel Sukkarl when he was still back in Salonika. Yeah, I'll change it in my notes. Thank you. And... Um, he learns Kabbalah with Yosef Karo. I'd like to do that. What about you? The, uh, he becomes renowned. He announces in 15... He announces that in the year, in the future year of 1540, he somehow knows the Mashiach is coming. He travels to Italy. He meets with Jewish opposition. He charms them. He also gets an audience with the Pope. He also doesn't say that he's Mashiach. He... A lot of people understand that maybe he was Ben Yosef, the, the pre-Messianic figure who dies, uh, dies al-Kiddush Hashem. Um, but the Inquisition gets him too. And he's offered a chance to return to Catholicism as a fallen converso. Of course, he refuses, and he's burned at the stake, dying al-Kiddush Hashem. And Rav Yosef Karo writes about him that he envied the fate of Rav Shlomo Mocho. And I don't think Mashiach came in 1540. Uh, we, this is a phenomenon we talked about in Gemara class not long ago of great figures, legitimate figures, predicting Mashiach to come in very specific times. And at least, to the best we can read history, it doesn't seem like they were right. And so what, how is, what are we supposed to make of that? And we'll talk a lot about, especially when we get soon enough to Shabtai Tzvi, uh, what the ramifications of Messianic Hope, oh, I know where it came up recently. Anybody who came to my class last week on Chabad and the dangers of overzealousness in anticipating Mashiach and how people's, if you, you get people's hopes up to the point, you could kill the belief in, in Mashiach. Rabbi, exactly, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's uh, wisdom on the subject. Yeah. <coughs> the last figure was of Shlomo Molcho. Rabbi Lieber came over to me last year, had a whole question about him. He said, is, is he taken seriously? He said, yeah, clearly uh, he's related to as, as, as a great figure. Um, the last figure is the least well-known, but kind of a sign of the times. She's referred to, she doesn't have a clear name that we know. She's called the Maiden of Herrera. 
Herrera's a city in Spain. She was a converso girl of the age of 15 years old around this period of time who she describes having ecstatic visions in which she speaks with the Mashiach in heaven. Excuse me, no, she speaks with the Mashiach and the Mashiach takes her to heaven. And in heaven she meets all of the Kedoshim, all the people who died, <coughs> martyrdom, dying al-Kiddush Hashem. And they explain to her, they're sitting on golden thrones in her image, in her vision, and they explain that the Geula is imminent. And they promise this to her. And she comes back and starts talking about her visions. Uh, she's called the prophetess. She creates a major commotion to the point that the Inquisition arrests her and all of her followers, and they burn her and all of her followers at the stake. Um, the danger of this messianism, of course, is once it spends itself, it actually gives way often to greater disillusionment uh, once the false prophets pass, and we're going to see that will be devastating. And arguably, this kind of false messianism will have a lot to do with the unfolding assimilation, secular enlightenment, reform movement, and the, the, the um, break apart of much of Klal Yisrael in the, in, uh, the, the ensuing centuries. Okay, Shukaya. Good to see you all.